1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a reading from the ESV translation. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now had obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by God to punish evildoers and for those, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray before Tim comes up to preach. Father, we, we ask you even now that you will give your servant grace to preach with clarity, conviction, and power under the Holy Spirit, and that you will give us grace to hear your word, even as the original readers heard your word through the Apostle Peter. May we not be merely hearers of the words, but doers of your word. We pray this in the powerful, awesome name of Jesus and the people of God say amen. 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 Well, good afternoon. It is once again good to be with you all and now to open up God's word Keep your Bibles open, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. This, this is the second of two messages entitled Faith and Flag. In these couple of messages, I'm trying to show from God's Word what should be our attitude, our priorities in a multi-colored, multi-cultured world of politics and patriotism. By the way... I should say up front, I have no intention of telling anyone how to vote. How could I? That would be the blind leading the blind. I can't even tell you how I'm going to vote. Because I don't know. It's not to tell you how to vote, but it is by God's grace and with God's help uh, to see some truths that will help us to conduct ourselves in a way that is above reproach, in a generation and in a culture that has gone off the rails. I, I am here this afternoon to preach to Risen Hope Church. 
because I'm wearing this thing right here and there are machinery up there. This is being recorded and so there will be people who are not here who will hear this message and to you folks listening that way, welcome. It's good to have you with us. But this message is for Risen Hope Church. This message is for this particular congregation in this particular context. And I'm preaching in behalf of unity and love across the political lines that could so easily divide us. I'm here to preach to you unity and love rooted in and grounded in our true identity in Jesus Christ so that we will not be tossed about by every gust of political or current event wind that blows our way from day to day. The author Soong Chan Ra concludes his book, Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing World, with this very realistic and sobering word that applies very much to this church. He writes, the call to build a multi-ethnic, multicultural, racially reconciled church is an extremely high calling. Brothers and sisters, let there be no doubt that we have received that calling. But it is an extremely high calling. There are numerous obstacles in society and in our human nature that could prevent us from living into God's calling for our church. We must recognize, however, that this calling to be a diverse community that truly represents the kingdom of God requires great sacrifice. The deeply seated demonic power of racism cannot be overthrown without great cost. He says there are numerous obstacles to this unity. That is a massive understatement. There are almost endless obstacles to this, more than we know. And we will come up against them. We will face them. We will confront them the further we go as brothers and sisters in Christ here in Risen Hope Church. But one thing we do know as far as obstacles go is that there are many different perspectives on politics and country and patriotism and the rest. And when we stop to realize, speaking in general terms, that our experiences of this country have been vastly different. And because they have been vastly different, we see everything differently. We're like drivers of cars on opposite sides of the blue route. When an accident or construction work or reduced lanes grinds one direction to a halt while the other side is flowing freely. And at the end of that particular day, you ask a driver from each side of the highway, so how was the blue route today? And one will say, it was great. No slowdowns, no problems at all. It was free sailing. But the other will say, it was terrible. Dead stop, bumper to bumper, the whole way. Same road, but a different perspective based on a different experience. 
And if I, who happened to drive on the side that was flowing freely and unhindered, were to say something like, I hope the blue route is great again, someone else who drove on the other side where the accident happened, where the barriers happened, where the lanes reduced from three to one happened, is going to ask, what are you talking about great again? Are you following? The illustration isn't perfect. I could add details to make it even more specific. But I think as far as it goes, it helps us to understand that when we talk about America and politics and patriotism and the greatness of this land, many, many times our points of view are determined by our experiences. And different experiences produce different levels of patriotism or joy or pride or whatever. This explains why if I read to you 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, keep your Bibles open, if I merely read aloud the simple command that Peter gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 and verse 17, honor the emperor. The emperor is who? From last week? Nero. Honor Emperor Nero. And if we just change it slightly, honor President Trump. That simple statement will provoke very different interpretations, responses, and visceral emotions in many of us, even though I'm just reading a clear commandment of Scripture. And if we could connect each of us to a heart monitor measuring respect, favorableness, positive versus angst, fear, and anger right now, if we could connect a heart monitor to each and every one of us, the readings would be all over the place. Just in response to honor the President Trump. Why do you think that is? It is because, first of all, as I just said, our gut level reactions to that simple statement reflect vastly different experiences of our world. But there's a second reason why there are different reactions. It is because we have some confusion over what it means to honor the emperor or honor the president. We've got to be clear at this point. Peter does not mean that we should honor whatever the emperor says or does, no matter how sinful or evil it might be. When it comes to rulers, we are to honor them, though we may in many strong and, and assertive ways contradict and rebuke the things they say and they do. So what does it mean to honor the emperor, to honor the president? It means to honor the image of God that is in them and honor the office from God that they are in. It is honor the image of God in them because 
every man, every woman on the planet, no matter how, how evil, no matter how depraved, every single one of us is made in the image of God. And so even though we may strongly disagree and strongly rebuke, we do it with honor because that's a human being. And we honor the office from God that they are in. We recognize that everyone who is in an office of authority has been appointed by God. The scriptures tell that over and over again. And we honor the office even if we cannot honor the man. And if we understand that, the confusion over what it means to honor, I think at least some of the angst can can be relieved. But you know, I'm convinced that we need to go even deeper than this. If, if we're going to be able to honor the emperor, if we're going to be able to honor those who rule over us, if we are going to be able to stay united in this political season, then we need to have a clear sense of identity. We need to have a clear sense of who and whose we are together. Together if we are going to stay united. Who am I? Primarily, mostly, supremely. Who is Tim Shorey? Who are you? Who are we together as the people of God? I'm here to tell you today, we are not primarily Americans. We are not mostly Republicans or Democrats or Independents or left-wing or right-wing or fans of this party or that candidate or some other persuasion. We are not primarily male or female or black or white or brown. We have a primary identity that surpasses all of those other aspects of identity. And we need to understand who we are. We need to understand who we are together if we are going to stay together in Christ and, brothers and sisters, if we are going to make a significant, distinctive Christian difference in this world in which we live. We need to understand who and whose we are. Another way of saying that is this. We need to understand two things. Our shared identity and then our shared responsibility our shared identity, and then our shared responsibility. Let's begin with the first. What is our shared identity? My aim here, based on 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 primarily, is to give us a quick glance at who we are together according to the Apostle Peter. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who we are. I wish we could spend a lot of time on each of these. We're going to have to touch them quickly. And hopefully that will suffice to shape a shared identity among us. Number one. We are together a chosen race. Verse 9a, you are a chosen race. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters, in Christ? It means that before time began, before the foundation of the world, 
We together, not as Americans, not as Africans or Asians or any other ethnicity, but as equally sinful human beings, undeserving of the love of God for no other reason than God's sovereign mercy and grace, He chose us. We are a chosen race. We were selected by God not because we were good, not because we were this color or that color or this party or that party or this nation or that nation. He chose us because in the mystery of the mind and heart of God, He wanted to. And He loved us. And He set His love upon us. And He said, they're going to be mine. They're going to be mine. Peter says, you're a chosen race. He moves on. He says that we are together a redeemed possession. Look at verse 9. We are a people for God's own possession. We are a people belonging to God. And, and this is not the possession of tyranny or oppression, but the, the, the possession of love and treasuring affection. So how did God come to possess us in this way? Look back at chapter 1 and verse 17. Chapter 1 and verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What does this mean? How did we become God's possession? He ransomed us. He redeemed us. He paid dearly to have us, to free us from slavery to judgment and wrath and sin. How much did He value you and me? How much did He value us? Enough to pour out the blood of His own Son for us. He set that much value on us. Not because we were worthy of it, but because He loved us and He decided to have us to be His own. And He said, I want them. They're mine. I've chosen them. They have sinned. They deserve my wrath. They deserve my fury. They deserve my judgment. If I give them what they deserve, then I can't have them as my possession. So let me give my Son in their place. Let me give my Son and allow Him to pour out His blood for them so that their sins can be paid for and their ransom can be paid and then they can be redeemed to be mine forever. We are a redeemed possession together. All of us. Look around. Every person in this room who knows and loves Jesus Christ has been redeemed with precious blood because valued and cherished by an infinitely amazing love of God. Third, we are together a holy nation. Verse 9 again of chapter 2, you are a holy nation, a holy, the Greek word, ethnos means that together as a spiritual nation we are called to be holy. There are many different ethnos, ethnicities 
in the world and all the ethnicities in this world are sinful ethnicities but there is one holy ethnos there is one holy ethnicity and that is those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ we have been called to be his holy nation fourth we are together a royal priesthood Verse 9, you are a royal priesthood, not just priests, but a priesthood, not just a priesthood, a royal priesthood. This is two great honors rolled into one. We are a priesthood with royal status. As priests, we have free access to God to offer our praise, to offer our love, to offer our affection. We don't need any human priest. We don't need any mediator on earth. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And through Him, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. We are priests that have easy access to God to offer sacrifices of praise and at the same time we are priests of a royal line. And having a royal line means that the day is coming when as priests and as kings we're going to sit on thrones in the new heaven and the new earth. So look around you my friends you are seeing royalty. Look around you, you're looking at men and women and young people who one day are going to sit on a throne. Look around you, you're looking at God's priesthood and God's royal line. Look around you and see not color, not person, not sinner, not whatever. See someone destined for glory. We are a royal priesthood. And when you see color, to correct what I just said a little bit, when you see color, realize that that color is part of the multi-variegated, beautiful tapestry that God is creating so that this royal priesthood is one holy ethnos, one holy nation made up of all different shades and varieties of human beings. Next. We are together a consecrated temple. A consecrated temple. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Wherever Christians gather together, they are forming the house of God. God is in this place, not the building per se, but the building is only a church because the church is in the building. We are the temple of God. We are the household of God. We are, when we're gathered together, are the house in which God dwells. Next, we see that we are together a love-devoted family. A love-devoted family. I want you to notice that First Peter has how many chapters to it? Five. And there are there is a love command in each one of the five chapters. 
So we have in chapter 1 and verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2 and verse 17, love the brotherhood and sisterhood. Chapter 3 and verse 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Chapter 4 and verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Chapter 5 and verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Five chapters, five love commands. What does that say to you? It says to me that Peter is aware that when God's people live in this broken world full of hostile people and political upheaval as we learned last week, as God's people live with different perspectives on the world and on politics and on government and all the rest, as God's people try to live together, love is going to be really hard. And so Peter has to just drive it home over and over again. Five times in five chapters as if to say to us, no matter what else I say, remember this. Remember this. We are a brotherhood. We are a sisterhood. We are a family devoted to one another in love. Yes, there is country, but then there's family. Yes, there are parties and there are politics, but there are brothers and sisters. We can debate politics and we can negotiate bills and we can terminate policies but we cannot debate unity we cannot negotiate family we cannot terminate love above all things love one another earnestly as brothers and sisters with a love Peter says that covers a multitude of sins. Peter is saying, you're going to sin often against each other as you try to navigate through this crazy world. As you try to navigate through disagreements, you're going to sin many, 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 many times. But love covers a multitude of sins. Finally, we are together a free people. A free people. Notice chapter 2 and verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is a remarkable verse. He has just told us to submit to rulers. But then he turns around and says, live as people who are free. What's he saying? He is saying that rulers and authorities and tyrants cannot take away our freedom. This is a freedom of the soul. This is a freedom of the heart. 
This is that freedom that comes through the Gospel that says, I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I have been set free from condemnation and judgment and wrath. I have been set free to be a child of God. I am free and nobody, nobody can take away my freedom. Nobody can take away my liberty in Christ. Oh, people can oppress me and people can treat me badly, but nobody can take away my freedom. Peter's saying, live as free people. Live as people who know who you are, destined for glory. You're coming out on the winning side. You're on the side of, I was going to say, you're on the side of the King of Kings. That's backwards. The King of Kings is on our side. The King of Kings. I don't know which way it goes. It goes either way. It goes both ways. All right, just, just understand this. The King of Kings. And you are on the same side. And He has redeemed you and set you free. Made me think of the old hymn, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. See, nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can strip you of who you are in Christ. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me does continually dwell. No matter what's going on around me, I've been redeemed. And His presence is continually with me. I know I shall see in His beauty the King in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards my footsteps and gives to me songs in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. Peter is saying, live in the freedom of the gospel. And while others may take away physical freedom, they cannot take away the freedom of the soul. This is who we are together in Christ. This is our shared identity. Now let's focus briefly on our shared responsibility. We've looked at who we are. Let's look now at what we are to be. Suggest that in the text there are at least three things we are to be in our culture and in our world. Number one, we are to be an embassy for Christ. We are to be an embassy for Christ. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. And embassy, as you know, is, is a building, is a location in a foreign country, a country not a homeland. It's a location where representatives of the homeland live and work and represent the homeland to that country. We are, as the church, an embassy for Christ. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the work of an ambassador. That's, that's what an embassy does. It proclaims, it proclaims the homeland. It proclaims, in this case, 
we proclaim God. We proclaim the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We proclaim the excellencies of our God. So we are an embassy here on this planet. This is not our home. We're just passing through. This, this is not our homeland. Heaven is our homeland. We are citizens of heaven. We're just passing through. We're sojourners and exiles here on this planet. But we're also an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. We are those who are called to proclaim who God is. Notice it says, proclaim the praises or the excellencies of God. This is why we're here. We're, we're not here to proclaim our politics. We're here to proclaim King Jesus. We are not here to proclaim our platforms. We are here to proclaim the praises and the excellencies of our God. I was somewhere recently at a kind of evangelism training experience and, and I, I heard one of the teachers use this phrase. His, his approach to, to witness and evangelism was very simple. He said, live out loud. Just live out loud. And he went on to explain what he meant by that. He said, just be who you are as a child of God. Live out loud. Did God tell you something this morning through His Word? Live out loud. Tell somebody about it today. Has God been good to you? Live out loud. Share it with somebody today. Do you love Jesus? Does Jesus love you? Live out loud. Tell someone about it. Proclaim the praises of God. We are, we are His embassy here on this planet. We are His ambassadors for Christ. We are to be an embassy. Number two, we are to be a conscience for our culture. We are to be a conscience for our culture. Notice chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is Peter teaching us here? He is teaching us that our words and our deeds, our lives, are to be a moral conscience for those who are around us and for those that are over us. Let me try to put a couple things in balance here. Last week, we, we saw what Peter says in verse 13, that we are to be subject to those in authority over us, no matter who they are. What that means, biblically defined, is that we are to honor them, 1 Peter 2 and verse 17. We are to pray for them, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3. We are to subsidize them by paying our taxes, Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. And we are to obey them, Romans 13, verses 1 through 5, unless they command us to do sinful things or forbid us to do holy things. All of that is just to say what Jesus meant when He said in Matthew 22, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There are certain things that belong to Caesar. Honor, prayer, 
subsidy, and obedience. But, this is where the balance comes. This does not mean that we are to be silent. This does not mean that we are to be passive in the face of evil. It does not mean that we can ignore evil and injustice and do nothing about it. Submission is not a call to silence and passivity. The Scripture makes it clear, to my mind at least, that there is a time for civil rebuke and there is a time for civil disobedience. When clear evil and injustice are being done or commanded of us, we are to rebuke it. And if we are try they are trying to force us to do evil, we are to disobey them. Our words and our deeds must convict people and authorities of what is right and what is wrong. I believe pastors are called to this. The prophetic pastors are meant to have, I believe, a prophetic role in society, in culture. In 2 Timothy 3, a pastor is called a man of God. For those that know the Old Testament well, you will recognize that phrase, man of God, as a very descriptive phrase used over and over in the Old Testament for the prophets of the Old Testament. There is, a, there is in part a parallel role between a pastor and the Old Testament prophets. <clears throat> and one of the key roles of prophets in the Old Testament was to call out the moral and spiritual failures of political and spiritual and national leaders. Moses did it. To, each, uh, to Pharaoh. Elijah did it time and again. Elisha did it time and again. All the prophets did it. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets, personally rebuked Herod for his immorality in stealing his brother's wife. Jesus rebuked the leaders of His day. Paul rebuked the leaders of His day facing the rulers and speaking to them about sin and righteousness and judgment. This is part of the role of a pastor is to speak about these types of things. God's people and the world need to hear voices that are deeply grounded in the Word of God, that live by the Word of God, that are able to address current moral and ethical situations in our times. I wonder what would happen if more pastors and more Christians would really raise a voice, really raise a voice against systemic racial injustice, against a system that time and again, year after year, does injustice to those who are poor, who don't have the money that others have to get justice in the system. What would happen if pastors and Christians would raise a voice of conviction. Not because they're buying into some kind of social justice or social gospel tangent, but because we're called to do justice. And we're called to be a voice for justice in our, our generation. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth 
judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We are called to open our mouths. We are called to speak. So submission does not mean silence. Honoring the emperor does not mean ignoring the evil that he says and does. It just means when you rebuke, you do it with honor. You do it with respect. I wonder what would happen if all Bible-believing pastors and churches would raise a united voice against the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, holocaust of our times. The abortion issue. 3,000 babies every day are killed in this country alone. Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12 say, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay according to each his work? What would happen if Christian voices, not just pastors, would speak up, would speak up in rebuke of national leaders without playing favorites? doesn't matter what party they're at. An equal opportunity voice of rebuke. So if a Republican says or does something evil, we speak about it. If a Democrat says or does something evil, we speak about it. We speak without bias. It's not really a prophetic voice if all we're ever doing is rebuking the evil in the other. It is only prophetic. It only has integrity if we are unbiased, if we are fair, if we are even-handed. But we must speak. But you know what? Peter's concerned for sure that we speak as a conscience. But as I look at his text, I think he's concerned even more that we live in such a way that we are a conscience to our culture. He is concerned that, that our good behavior, that our good behavior is such that people will look at us and though they want to slander us and though they want to accuse us and though they want to despise us, they can't help but respect us because of the integrity of our lives. And it says in chapter 4, he refers to the world that they are, let them be surprised when you do not join them in their sinful behavior. Let them be surprised. I wonder, are you surprisingly holy? Are you, are you surprisingly just? Are you surprisingly unbiased? Are you surprisingly humble? Does the world look at you and say, where did you come from? What, what made you this way? Are you, are you surprisingly hopeful? Chapter 3, it says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
Is there something about your hopefulness in this broken world, in this dark world? Is there something about your ability to see above the darkness, up into the glory of God, to see the throne above it all, and to realize my God is in control, my God wins in the end, we're going forward. Is there a surprising hopefulness in you? It is surprising godliness. It is surprising humility. It is surprising teachableness. It is surprising hope. It is surprising justice that makes the world look at us and say, what makes you tick? It's not your vote that's going to make the biggest difference. It's your life that's going to make the biggest difference. We are to be a conscience for our culture. And finally, we are to be a refuge of goodness. A refuge of goodness. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Biblical hospitality is more than just an occasional having a friend over for dinner. Biblical hospitality is a lifestyle for a person, for a family, for a church. A lifestyle that is committed to being a refuge for others where we can do them good Basically what Peter is saying to us is that we are called to turn our homes and our lives into a safe place and a welcoming refuge. In chapter 4 and verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Peter is saying that we are called to be a refuge of goodness. That we are called as the people of God to be an embassy of Christ, a conscience for our culture, and a, a refuge, a refuge for the broken, for the needy, for the desperate, a refuge of goodness. So you can see that I haven't told you how to vote. You can look in the Bible up and down and all around and you'll never be told how to vote. But you are told how to live and how to hope and how to love and how to stay united. Let us then pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. Let us find our identity in Christ and in His people alone. Let us be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Let us do justice and love mercy. Be holy. Let us choose love and unity that cover a multitude of sins, no matter what those sins may be. And let us not ever, ever, ever be afraid for our Jesus is on the throne. King Jesus reigns and He will reign until every enemy is made his footstool. And every kingdom and every authority has been made subject to his kingdom. He will reign 
world without end, and we will reign with him. May God give us grace so to live. As we close, it seems very fitting that we have a season of prayer together. I want us to break into clusters of maybe four, five, six people. If, if you're not inclined or comfortable to, to pray with others, that's fine. Just right where you are, just stay and pray. But if you're inclined, join with five or six others. And here's, here's what I encourage you to pray for. Pray for our leaders, our national leaders and those who govern us. Pray for them. God will give them the fear of God and wisdom from heaven. Pray for our unity and our love as the people of God. Pray that we will have grace and love that will overcome a multitude of sins. Pray that we'll have peace among us, even as the world seems to be going crazy. Let's pray together. Gather in four, five, six people for the next several minutes. Let's close our season.